Well, would you open the scriptures with me to Proverbs chapter 12? In verse 10 of Proverbs chapter 12, we're told, A righteous man has regard for the life of his beast, but the compassion of the wicked is cruel. Particularly the last, latter part of that verse, the compassion of the wicked is cruel. I want to give you an example of that this evening. First of all, I'd like to quote H.G. Wells. Now, if you know literature very well, you know that H.G. Wells was a famous 20th century British uh, author and leading intellectual. And he said this about a woman that I want to talk about this evening. He described her as the greatest woman in the world. Pretty good uh, accolade. The movement she started will grow to be, uh, in a hundred years from now, the most influential of, of all time in controlling man's destiny on earth. So, he knew quite a bit about this woman because he was in a adulterous relationship with her. So, who was this woman that H.G. Wells thought would be the most influential of all time? Who? Nora. Nora has it. Margaret Sanger, the founder of Planned Parenthood. Now, she's considered to be the great heroine of the pro-choice movement and to various feminist groups around the world. She is considered a great woman, a great leader. They see her as the champion of women's health and a woman's right to control her own fertility through birth control and abortion. And since we are approaching the anniversary of the Supreme Court decision of Roe v. Wade, which legalized abortion in the U.S., that was January 22, 1973, I thought we might look just very briefly at her life and draw some lessons from it. She lived from 1879 to 1966. Her father was a socialist, somewhat of a radical and free thinker. Uh, he earned a meager income by chiseling tombstones for cemeteries. And to say the least, it was not a normal family situation. Just to give you an example uh, of what seemed to me pretty dysfunctional, uh, when Margaret was a young girl, 
she remembers her dad taking her out to the graveyard where her her four-year-old brother, who had just died two days prior, was buried. What did they do out there? They dug him up so that he could make a plaster cast of his face. That had somewhat of a trauma in her life, especially later on when they discovered that a lock of the little boy's hair was right there in the plaster cast. So, um, a strange family background. Her mother lived a stressful life, which involved 18 pregnancies, only 11 of which came to full term. Uh, In fact, her mother's death when Margaret was 19 had a profound effect on her life. She felt no woman should have to go through and endure life like her mother did. So that's a little background into her early life. Um, After her mother's death, she worked as a nurse in the slums of New York City. And in that situation, she saw many sad and desperate family situations. One woman in particular who died of a botched self-induced abortion made her determined to do something about this problem that plagued women, that problem of what she would call unwanted pregnancies. The problem as she saw it, well, women need to have freedom to use their bodies as they see fit, especially in the area of reproduction. Unwanted pregnancies and large families, which restrict women and also, according to her, bring about much of the misery in the world. So this was her great crusade to do something about this. Not only did she see women who she felt like were miserable uh, because of this condition, she believed that that misery was also uh, part of being in a large family. It was misery for the children themselves. It was in that context that she made this incredible statement. The most merciful thing a large family can do to one of its infant members is to kill it. So that is an idea of her view of mercy and compassion, you see. The most merciful thing is to kill that uh, infant member if it's part of a large family. See, the, the compassion of the wicked is cruel, as the scriptures say. So her idea was that birth control would alleviate the problems that plague a family with too many children, but it also would be good for society in that it can keep the world from overpopulation. It can also help stop the reproduction of the genetically unfit. Now, that term ought to cause you some consternation, the genetically unfit. She was a Darwinist, which means she, li- she believed in evolution. She was a eugenicist, 
which meant she believed in the idea of the perfectibility of the human race through breeding, either keeping the, the unfit from breeding or uh, having the fit breed more with one another. Uh, so she was a eugenicist, a socialist, and a racist. For instance, she saw the Australian Aborigines as under-evolved members of the human family, just a step higher than chimpanzee in brain development. Now, I, I'm, I could read you the quotes, but uh, I looked them up. She said that. Uh, to her, such elements, the, those type of individuals, must be kept from reproducing and not allowed to enter the good gene pool. That would be hers and some of the other intellectuals of the world. Now, to be fair, it seems she never got to the place of recommending the killing of the, quote, genetically unfit, the way it was, uh, the way it took place in Nazi Germany, in Hitler's Germany. But she was, at first, enthusiastic about the Nazi eugenic program, which included coerced sterilization. Let me just read a little quote here. In the 1933 magazine for Planned Parenthood, known in Sanger's day as the Birth Control Review, uh, one of the articles that was published was called Eugenic Sterilization, an Urgent Need. Who was that by? Well, that was by Ernest Rudin, Hitler's director of genetic sterilization and the founder of the Nazi Society for Racial Hygiene. So here she's printing these Nazi materials uh, in her birth control review. Later that year, uh, she published an article by E. A. Whitney entitled Selective Sterilization, which strongly praised and defended the Nazi racial programs. Though praising eugenics, Sanger saw birth control as the best way to rid society of what she considered feeble-minded people. Who is that? Well, those whose mentality was less than that of a 12-year-old. Sorry, kids. <laughs> this, this is what she said. And the fact is, she, she considered that to be, she estimated that such people constituted, constituted almost 50% of the population. Now, that's a lot of people. Let me read you a quote from her book, The Pivot of Civilization. At the present time, civilized nations are penalizing talent and genius. The bearers of the torch of civilization to coddle and perpetuate the choking human undergrowth. This, these are incredible things she's saying here. We're penalizing the talented and the genius of our 
race by coddling and perpetuate and perpetuating the choking human undergrowth which threatens to overrun the whole garden of humanity so she pictures these genetically inferior people as she would style them as like weeds in the garden and they're pulling you know they're ruining the garden overrunning the whole garden of humanity yet men continue to drug themselves with the opiate of optimism or to sink back upon the cushions of christian resignation their intellectual powers anesthetized with cheerful platitudes what she means there is we listen to what these christians are saying about taking care of the poor and the weak and we're ruining we're ruining the race with these christian platitudes so again the compassion of the wicked is cruel uh, in that same book there's a whole chapter entitled the cruelty of charity the cruelty of charity and in one of the chapters i or in that chapter i was reading some of it today she alludes to the work of the salvation army as dangerous because their benevolence encourages the perpetuation of defectives i mean we're helping these weak ones these poor ones well that brings us then to the major thing we should take into account concerning margaret sanger she was an atheist the slogan for her magazine the magazine her first magazine was called the woman woman rebel and the slogan was no gods no masters in that first issue she said she chose the title woman rebel because she quote believed that women woman is enslaved by the world machine by sex conventions by motherhood and its present necessity of childbearing by wage slavery by middle class morality by customs laws and superstitions of course she's talking largely about christianity there she said in another place birth control appeals to the advanced radical because it is calculated to undermine the authority of the christian churches i look forward to seeing humanity free someday from the tyranny of christianity no less than capitalism she was a socialist and an atheist she said i'd like to get rid of both of christianity and capitalism well that's the woman that uh hg wells said is the greatest woman in the world it's going to change the world more than any other woman well that's a, a very brief sketch or look at her life now i think we must recognize that some of what she was reacting against were real evils and difficulties and sad situations things like self-induced abortions 
the deplorable living conditions that she saw some families were in, and even the difficulties and sufferings that can, can be caused by repeated pregnancies of women that lack the physical, emotional, or spiritual resources to deal with all the children they were biologically capable of producing. Those things are, are things that would, should cause us to examine what should be done. But lacking a biblical base, she didn't even really see the root problem, which is the sinful nature of mankind. That's the problem. And she could never provide the right answers. If you don't have to see the right problem, you're not going to give the right answer. The fact is that her worldview, which centered on living without God, is the root cause of the evils she thought she was going to remedy. It was, it was her attitude towards life, shared by many, many others, that was really the problem. Yeah. So what are some lessons from her life? Uh, I just wrote down a few here. You could probably add some others even from this brief description that I've given. But here's a few things. Satan is a master of using a reaction against an existing evil to bring about an even greater evil. And you've got to think about that one, but it, it happens over and over again. Satan will point out some evil and use an ungodly reaction to that evil to bring about an even greater evil. Letting the person think that they're actually doing good. Again, Sanger correctly saw some of the evils around her, but ended up fighting those evils in a way that opened the door for even greater evil. I mean, here we are now, since 1973, with 50 million abortions in the United States. That's just in the United States. Planned Parent International is all around the world. And there's almost 50 million abortions every year all around the world. And that's just one area. I mean, that's just the abortion thing. Think of all the uh, sexually transmitted diseases and all the other ramifications of this kind of a, a mindset just in the air of sexuality. So... Again, Satan's a master of using a reaction against an existing evil to bring about a greater evil. Let me just give another example since she was a socialist. Uh, here you have the evil of the way the czar in Russia and the aristocracy lived in affluence and the peasants were starving. That's evil. That's wrong. So the Bolsheviks come along and say, that's evil. That's wrong. We've got to overthrow that system. Well, it was evil. It was wrong. 
But what was Satan doing there? I say he was using an evil, a reaction to an evil, to bring about an even greater evil. Because the communists take over, and you have them killing off millions and millions of their own people, let alone what they did throughout the world, but just there in the Soviet Union. Millions of their own people. So, they brought about an even greater evil in their reaction to the evil of the uh, czar and the aristocracy. So, just to put it more for, for our, our terms, if Satan can get you to fight evil with evil, he wins the battle. Well, that's the first thing. Another thing I'd say is so much depends on the way in which we oppose injustice. So much depends on the way in which we oppose injustice. It kind of goes back to the, the, the previous one, but let's just read Second Timothy because this, this ought to uh, be in our minds as we deal with the wrongs and evils and inequities that we see around us in the world and in our own lives. Second Timothy chapter 2, verse 24, says, And the Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. So dealing with the wrongs, the sins, the injustices in God's way not Satan's way. Another thing I would say is just a maybe a little bit of a uh, extension of Jesus's basic thought when he says beware of men. I would say beware of the human planners who think they can perfect society. Always beware of that. Beware of the human planners that think they can perfect society. God's not going to allow that. It's really the old Tower of Babel thing again and again and again in the history of mankind. Or probably, really, it's going back even further to the lie of Satan there in the garden. You can handle life. You can do right. You can do all right on your own. You don't need God. Beware of any any type of a system or plan or or program that presents that type of thing. And then I would also say we need real wisdom in dealing with the complex situations of life in a fallen world. It takes real wisdom. You might it might look like something 
is the right thing to do, but in the long run, it won't be the right thing to do. And it takes real discernment and real wisdom many times to give a right answer. Some issues are not capable of being answered just quickly and easily. In other words, sometimes, really quite often, we need to cry for discernment. That's what the scriptures say. You're going to have to cry for discernment if you're going to have it. From what I've read about this period in the 20s and 30s, uh, 1920s, 1930s, and 40s, and even beyond that, actually, many professing Christians fell into thinking that this eugenics thing was all right. It was a proper thing for humanity. And as we've said many times here, you can justify just about anything if you're not careful with what the Scriptures say. You can justify just about anything from the Bible if you twist and turn and take things out of context. You have to be careful to maintain a biblically balanced worldview and not just go by what one verse taken out of context might seem to teach. We have to go with the overall teachings of the Scriptures. So, wisdom, the need to cry for discernment and wisdom. We all need, constantly need, biblical wisdom. Or we're gonna, It may not be as radical or extreme or as bad as Margaret Sanger got into, but we'll go off on the wrong angle. And down the road, it'll cause harm. Well, the kind of wisdom we need is described for us in James chapter 3. So let's turn to that. I'm going to close with that. And I just want to say this, that uh, after you read, you spend a little time with your mind in reading some of these things that I read today about Margaret Sanger. It is so good to read the Bible again. It, it's just amazing. That you're just, suddenly you're back in a whole different atmosphere, a whole different uh, uh, feeling about life. And it's good to get back in the Scriptures. Uh, here's the kind of wisdom that we need. First of all, well, chapter 3, James chapter 3, And uh, I'm just going to really look at one verse here. Verse 17. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering without hypocrisy. And the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. But just verse 17, let's just analyze. What kind of wisdom do we need? Well, we don't need worldly wisdom. We need heavenly wisdom. We need wisdom from above. And by that, I I would put two sides to that. One, God's Word interpreted to us 
taught to us, explained to us by the Holy Spirit. That's, that's the kind of wisdom we need. Wisdom from above. A wisdom that comes from heaven. God's word taught by the Holy Spirit. And then next it says, pure. It's a pure wisdom. It loves that which is good and true and beautiful. It takes joy in what's pure and holy. That's the kind of wisdom you need. And then it's peaceable. It's quiet and confident in God. It can rest in, in what God has said. I, I like the way Psalm... Just keep your place there in James and let me just read uh, a psalm to you here. This is... You don't need to turn to it because it's a short psalm and I'll just read it. Psalm 131. The psalmist says, O Lord... My heart is not proud. It's this kind of wisdom you need. It's not a proud wisdom. That's the problem with a lot of understanding, intellectual understanding today. It's proud. O oh Lord, my heart is not proud, nor my eyes haughty, nor do I involve myself in great matters or in things too difficult for me. Surely I have composed and quieted my soul like a weaned child rests against his mother. My soul is like a weaned child within me. We're talking about a a type of wisdom that's peaceable. It's resting in God, you see. Like a weaned child rests against its mother, my soul is like a weaned child within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forever. So, composed and quiet wisdom because it's resting in God. So it's peaceable, not in a hurry. It can wait for God to get things done in His time. Peaceable. And then it says again back in James, it's gentle. It's a gentle wisdom. He said that up above in verse 13. Who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show by his good behavior his deeds in the gentleness of wisdom. The gentleness of wisdom. Real, where you find real wisdom, you're going to find a gentleness that comes with it. Uh, considerate of others. Jonathan Edwards said, said this. He said, All who are truly godly have a gentle spirit in them. I thought that was good. All who are truly godly have a gentle spirit in them. They're easy to work with, easy to live with. It would be a good prayer to include sometimes in your prayers, Lord, Help me to be easy to live with. It's a gentle wisdom, you see. And the next thing he says is reasonable. Reasonable. It means it's thoughtful. And part of it, the reasonableness of it is that it's willing to yield. That's why if you see, look down there, at least in my scriptures, it says that word reasonable can be translated willing to to yield. That's a pretty reasonable thing to be. If you're wrong, you better be willing to yield on something. Not uncorrectable. Not hard-headed. That's not the kind of wisdom that God approves of. It's teachable, submissive, willing to listen, willing to learn, 
That's what a disciple is, right? A learner. Willing to learn from God, yeah, but you know what? God a lot of times teaches it through other people. So, reasonable. And then, full of mercy. Full of mercy and good fruits. It's a wisdom that deals with others with a sensitivity and a compassion. It's full of mercy. And good fruits, well, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control. Especially when you're dealing with needy people. You've got to be full of mercy. And I, you know, I don't want to take away from Margaret Sanger's responsibility for the position she took. But maybe if somebody would have shown a little mercy there to her mom in those 18 pregnancies or to Margaret in some situations, she might have had a little different outlook on life. Full of mercy. Unwavering. To me, one of the aspects of being unwavering in our wisdom is that we don't fluctuate with the current spirit of the age, which is so easily to be caught up in, because it's all around us. It's the spirit of the age. You've got to be unwavering and not get carried away with every new wind of doctrine and wave that comes along. Unwavering. Uh, the unwavering wisdom of God is there for us in the scriptures helping us to be able to stand steadfast and unmovable. So we don't need to be like that, but we have to be careful. So we need an unwavering wisdom. And then it's a wisdom that's without hypocrisy. You see that? Without hypocrisy. That's a big one, I think. Which means it's a sincere wisdom. It is not pretend or play act, or wear masks. It's honest, unpretentious, transparent. A wisdom without hypocrisy. Well, we need that kind of wisdom so we can act into our world rightly. If we don't have it, we'll act wrongly. We'll end up making decisions and acting in ways that bring harm to the cause of Christ and to ourselves and to others. Well, I'll close just by going back to that verse we started with. The compassion of the wicked is cruel. If we were to have a compassion which is not cruel... We must be guided by God's wisdom.
Any uh, thoughts, questions? Well, let me toss one out here. Because Margaret Sanger promoted birth control, I believe it is an overreaction and not God's wisdom to say that all birth control is wrong. I think that's an overreaction. And you might end up doing more harm than good with that reaction to an evil. So... That's, you know, when we look at this example from Margaret Sanger, she looked into those situations, which some of them were difficult situations, but she looked only at this level because she didn't believe in God. And that makes all the difference in the world in how you look at a situation. Some things look desperate, they are desperate, but God's there and he can change situations, and he can work in lives. Well, Terry, why don't you close us in prayer?